The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I am thrilled to be joined by my longtime friend, principal coach of the Utah Opera, Carol Anderson. Hi, Carol. Hi, Jeff. It's great to be here, It's great to have you. I want to warn all of the listeners that Carol and I have known each other a long time, so this might devolve into just two friends (laughs) yakking about (laughs) stuff none of you understand. But I do want to talk, I said you were principal coach, and I find that to be one of the most important jobs of all of opera, but it's one of the least public, too. So describe for the listeners what you do. What What does this mean, principal coach? It is such a multifaceted job, so I apologize in advance for the fact that I can't say it in 25 words or less. Take as many as you like. It's um, When we had to do job descriptions once in the company, I felt like mine was three pages long. (laughs) And And it probably still didn't scratch the surface. (laughs) And then there's always that thing in the end, and then anything else. Of course. So as happens in many contracts, other duties as assigned. Exactly. One of the most important things I do is in the opera creation process. We don't have the orchestra until later in the process. And so uh, a pianist has to serve as the orchestra in the rehearsal hall. Mm -hmm. So that's really when people think of a principal coach, they think that's what they're doing. They're playing rehearsals. And that is absolutely a huge part of what I do. There are um, usually two of us, sometimes three, that will share those duties. But I'm the main person, Mm -hmm. the, if you will, principal Mm -hmm. person for that. So we do about two and a half weeks in the rehearsal hall with just piano accompaniment. And Mm -hmm. so I have studied the orchestral accompaniment before that time, and I'm adding as many things as I can to get as close to what the singers might be hearing. Right, the kinds of things they need to key off of. Exactly. I can't sound, I'm only 10 fingers. I can't sound (laughs) like an orchestra of 60 or 80 or however many we fit in the Capitol Theater pit, but sometimes editors make choices and they don't put in, say, an oboe line that is very important to the singer's next entrance. And so then I will add that into Uh my copy. So that's one of the main things. I'll also coordinate with the conductor and check on people who perhaps need a little extra polishing or maybe it's a new role and they want to Mm -hmm. do a lot of extra time just running through and becoming comfortable. That just happened recently with our Juliet. It was her first time. And so she asked that we could, whenever possible, just have some extra time just so she could become more comfortable with a big role, a big new role. So I'll always coordinate with that conductor and make sure that he or she is comfortable with where everybody is in their preparation. Most everyone shows up on day one knowing their roles very right, well, but there's right. always someone who maybe who might need a little bit of tweaking on their language, sure. polishing it. Their French maybe isn't exactly perfect. Or they just need, you know, to get used to something a little different that maybe the conductor is doing that they didn't expect. Mm-hmm. So I, I liaise, if that's a word, I liaise with the conductor and the scheduler to make sure those things are happening. I also have a huge part in working with our resident artists. These right. are the four right. singers and one pianist who stay in Utah. For We've had f- a couple of them on the show before. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So regular listeners will have learned a little bit about what they do. Right. We ask them to do a lot for the company. They go out as representatives to schools across the state. Yeah, we work them hard. We do, we do. No more than this last week. Yeah. But I am one of their mentors, Mm -hmm. and I work on the things that they're doing for the Utah Opera or the Utah Symphony when they do things with the other half of the company. And then I also work on their own music. They have auditions for summer programs and for things to do after they're finished at the Utah Opera. So I work on their own repertoire and I prepare them for all their assignments. So that's, um, you know, one to two to three coachings a week that they get with me one-on-one in my studio. 
So that is another huge part of what I do. And then it's just, as I've been here, I've found myself doing many things that I never thought I would do. There's a number of us that are involved in season planning. So Mm -hmm. I've gotten to be a part of that. That's unusual. Uh, It's one of the things about this size company. When I was at larger companies, I basically only did the musical opera things. But getting to have a voice in the future of the company is really exciting. Absolutely. Then I find myself having to write materials to support and educate and engage our patrons mm-hmm. and people who know various levels about the art form yeah. from very knowledgeable to people who are first time opera visitors. We had, I do um, prelude talks before every performance. Right, and I yeah. like to ask who's new at the opera when they come. And it's amazing how many people, and they're not only young people, but it is a mix of ages who are coming to the Utah opera for the first time. And it's just I always welcome them, and I'm thrilled that they've taken the extra effort to come to my talk and learn a little extra about it. We need more of them. Yes, and really, I hope that they feel welcome. That's one of my main things is that I want people to be thrilled that they came Mm -hmm. to the opera. And so that's a wonderful thing that I get to do to engage with patrons and help their experience be maybe just that much more exciting. Yeah, I mean, wow, the breadth of what you just described, your responsibilities. Well, I didn't even talk about languages. Oh, well, I do do want to talk about that, actually, because I'm, I've always been sort of fascinated. I've, you know, friends that are pianists as well that do a lot of memorizing for recital. Oh, my gosh, stuff like that. And thankfully, not me. I've always felt like, you know, brain space, headspace and memory are these finite things, right? Like, I, I, I recall this hilarious moment on a Simpsons episode where Lisa says to Homer, the concept being that when Homer learns new things, other things get pushed out. And she said, yeah, dad, do you remember that time you took that online cooking course and then you forgot how to drive? <laughs> so I'm wondering, Carol, you've got so much in your head at any one time. You, you, you know, I don't think people understand what, they're, what you're talking about when you talk about being a rehearsal pianist. You've got the entire score of the opera in your head and you've got languages in your head and you've got basically every standard aria for all of the voice types in your head. All this stuff's in your head. I mean, how do you do it? How do you juggle all that information? I keep thinking one day I'm going to know all the arias and all the operas, but it just doesn't work that way. I often, as a side gig, play for the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions, Mm -hmm. and I keep thinking this will be the year that no one brings me something new. Right. And that it, there's always one new piece. Yeah. I think it's it must be, you know, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist. I know this is shocking for you to know this, but <laughs> I feel like I read somewhere once that, you know, memory is in these little these little folds develop in your brain. Right, right. And I just think, I, I think we're going to run out of those folds, but it seems like there's always room for a new one. Yeah, yeah. And so I just take it in. I've, luckily, I haven't, I haven't reached maximum memory well, that's, space. I remember sitting in an audition with you, and I think somebody brought an excerpt from Walton the Bear. <laughs> yes. And you had never seen it in your life. I don't think any of us knew it, it even existed. And you just put it on the stand and played it. And it was incredible. And I, and I wonder now if that, what that cost you. Did you forget your phone number? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I must, maybe I forgot my phone number from like my first house right, when I was right, in first right. grade. That's actually a fun thing. You know, you talk about one of the things I bring to the table that's really great is I do have the ability to kind of look at scores and, and bring them to the keyboard. Yeah, instantly. There are a lot of things I can't do well. I can't memorize to save my life and yeah. I can't play by ear. Yeah. You know, if someone says, oh, this happens at parties, you know, why don't you just sit down and play blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I need... Yeah. an actual score in front yeah. of me. Yeah. But I remember when I was a kid growing up, I always wanted to play everything in my music book mm-hmm. that I wasn't assigned. And my mother would be yelling from the kitchen, play the 
things you're supposed to practice for right, your next lesson. And yeah. I would play everything but that. Yeah, yeah. And she jokes now that she's glad she didn't make me stop doing that extra reading because that seems to be a large portion of what I do these You've days. Is just, you know, I make this a career out of yeah, sight reading. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about the work you do, not only with the young artists, but with other artists when you're helping them polish. Because I think, you know, you do this group work where you're in these rehearsals and these staging sessions where you're playing this, the whole score, but you're also often just one-on-one in the practice mm-hmm. room with singers, helping them with their languages, helping them learn a part. And I think you probably get to see them during this role-building stage at a moment when they're maybe sometimes kind of fragile. And I, yes. you know, without breaking any doctor-patient confidentiality, I mean, what's it like? Are you a counselor to these people sometimes? Are they looking to you for moral support while they work through these tough spots? I wouldn't say necessarily that that is always part of being a principal coach. Every person, you know, we all have different strengths that we bring to the table and nurturing is just something I do. It's just the person I am. And um, that's not the case necessarily. I'm not saying other people are are not kind people, Mm -hmm. but there is something I think that just makes people feel like I'm a confidant and a a friend fairly early on. So I have had to act as a counselor. There's, I I call it sometimes diva tending. (laughs) If, you know, just with some of my friends who I, I am comfortable enough to joke with. And diva is a non-gendered word, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) It applies to all of us. Yes, because, you know, uh, gentlemen and ladies both need some diva tending, depending on what's going on. You know, there's been the times I've had to take uh, an ill singer who is a Mm -hmm. friend of mine and hold their hand while they're the ENT getting steroids, hoping that they can do their engagement. Sure. It's a really fine line to walk sometimes because you need to gain the singer's trust, but you also need to gain the conductor's trust. Mm -hmm. And nothing's worse, and thankfully that doesn't happen at Utah Opera. But I have been in situations where I was caught between two people who were not connecting, and I had to sort of be Switzerland in between them and kind of interpret what each person needed to say to the other one so that the art could be made with a minimum of tension. And then there's been the singers that have uh, felt that it's a new piece or a new role or a very difficult role, and they've just needed someone to be there and just pat their hand and say, it's going to be okay. You're doing great. You sound amazing. Mm -hmm. I actually love that part of the job. The thing that's so satisfying is knowing you were a part of this thing happening on the stage, this yeah. beautiful, beautiful art. And sometimes the the contribution I make is obvious. It was piano playing or mm-hmm. I told the singer when they were flat and so then they weren't flat on that. I mean, I would say that very nicely. You of have course. To, when you're talking about pitch with singers, you have to be very you have careful. To, you have to be diplomatic. That's <laughs> yes. And that's one of the biggest skills yeah. that this job needs. Absolutely. But, you know, I just love knowing. And if um, someone has done a wonderful job and gotten through a hurdle of learning a piece that was incredibly mm-hmm. difficult, and I'm thinking of a particular example, which I won't share, but sure. knowing when they have succeeded in that, knowing that you had a part in that is yeah. just so gratifying and satisfying. And then sometimes they'll buy you like a nice bottle of something yes. to celebrate, and that's uh, lovely Absolutely. to get a, a thank you. So it's just those kind of relationships are, they're like foxhole friendships. Absolutely. Where you just went through the trenches together yeah. and you came out and there's nothing like it for building a friendship and a relationship. talked a little bit before about um, some of the pre-show talks you give to audience members and I you know Utah Utah Opera sorry doesn't have a dramaturg 
which means that the work that sort of re deep research and sort of interpretive work falls to others. Like I do some writing for the mm -hmm. programs. You do a lot of work in this regard. You sort of, I mean, if, if the company's got one, it's sort of you. So I'm curious, you know, you speak to a lot of audience members before and after shows and you're, in, you're informing them about opera and getting them excited. And you talked a little bit about this a minute or two ago. What's your style? I mean, do you try to bring it to a conversational level with them? How much academic sort of information are you putting in there? Like, how would you describe your method for selling opera to people? Well, I have heard other people do pre-concert talks and I thought there's so much more erudite than I am. There's so much more professorial. But people love your talks. But, so. Well, so I must be doing something okay. I've, I think I've developed a style that is just, it's informative. I give them a few musicological facts without overwhelming them with minutia. Right. Sometimes I end up sharing information about a certain musical style. I like to explain a few terms, but I keep that to a minimum. And I would say that it's pretty conversational. Mm -hmm. I'm a fast talker, if you're not already noticing that, those of you who are listening. <laughs> Switch it on point five when, yeah. you, when you listen back. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's funny because I'll get people who will comment, they joke about the, they just learn to listen faster to my yeah, talks. Sure. But my goal is to make sure that they have gotten some good information. They've heard some music, so they have, I always play, excerpts and talk about how they fit into the drama or mm -hmm. what's unique about them, how it's supporting, what's special about it orchestrally, something like that. And so they've heard parts of the music before they go in. So when in the course of the opera, they can be like, oh, yes, that's what she played. Yeah. And then I am determined every talk has to have some little behind the scenes snippet of information that they're not going to get from the program. People love that. And I think that's just yeah. really important. I think if you've come early you deserve to hear something that other people aren't going to get to hear. And so sure. I don't want to regurgitate the synopsis. I never, right. rarely will. Right. Sometimes plot points come up. Mm -hmm. uh, with Romeo and Juliet, I sort of started out the whole thing saying, does anyone not know what happens? Because, yeah, you right. know, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> um, turns out it doesn't work well. Yeah. <laughs> These plans that they come up with, they don't happen very not well. Not well at all, actually. So, yeah, I just want them to have a little bit of gossip. Not anything that I shouldn't share. Nothing sure. inappropriate. I don't. You know, just a little treat. Just a treat, just yeah. a bonus. Yeah, you yeah. came in early, you came to my talk. It's great to see you. Here's yeah. your little Here's inside scoop. You. Yeah. Let's talk big picture for just a second because I I want to get your perspective on something. There was a recent Wall Street Journal article about, you know, whether or not American opera was doomed. And Articles like this come around every few years. Oh I mean, it's just it's sort of a never-ending cycle. You know, the, we have every couple of years we have to reckon with the death of art forms, and and it's been going on since the sixties, seventies. Of course, the same articles probably were. since the eighteen sixties. Um, <laughs> so, in your travels around the industry, I mean, what are you seeing? How would you describe the state of American opera these days? I mean, are we doomed? We are not doomed. Yeah. We are experiencing challenges that are mm -hmm. unlike what we encountered. I've been in the opera business for a little bit over 20 years. Mm -hmm. So approximately 23 years since I first was doing a young artist program myself yeah. as a trainee, yeah. an apprentice. And I happened to be at a, com a company at that time, the Houston Grand Opera, that was really one of the, f it seemed like at that time, one of the few companies consistently producing new opera. This mm -hmm. is in the, in the mid nineties. Yeah. And some major premieres happened at Houston Grand Opera, Nixon in China, one of the great operas of Absolutely. the 20th century. Yep. I could go on, um, yep. Florence and Amazonas, which we did here in in Utah a few yep. years later. But it seems like we're in this incredible time right now where so much new opera is being created. And what is in, unusual is 
opera companies are looking at different venues. They're like, how can we get people into other spaces? Yeah. They're doing operas that are specific to, they're, they're like non-proscenium theater. You know, proscenium theater is what we have in the Capitol Theater, and it's a beautiful place to do opera. Very traditional, very appropriate. But there yeah. are also so many venues where you can do things. Mm-hmm. You have companies going to an armory and staging one of these right. topical operas about... Train stations, yeah. Opera, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. war veterans or sure. something. Sure. So there's a lot of subject matter that's being explored that's very topical mm-hmm. and then new venues being discovered. People are presenting opera differently. Philadelphia Opera has this festival now they're doing, festival format that they're doing at the beginning of the year and they're doing four, I think, or even more productions in venues all over the city and it's yeah. gotten so much buzz and brought in lots of young audience people. So I think the key right now is that we just have to come up with creative ways to do what we've been doing for and, and this is not to say that we're not going to still do proscenium theater right. at the Capitol Theater. We love sure. that. But are we going to always do the same Romeo and Juliet? You know, we're doing a Romeo and Juliet that the company owns, but we're also going to be creating things like Moby Dick, right. a brand new production. Yeah, we talked about that a lot last season. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. you had Jake and you had mm-hmm. Gene to talk about it. Yeah, and it they're incredibly dynamic people who are at the forefront of yeah. the new opera wave. I don't know if that it's if I'm more aware of it because I'm involved in so much new opera these days between what we do in Santa Fe. And well, that's why I'm asking you. I think but you're perfectly situated to answer this. I think it is just one of, you know, these, these doomed articles show up on Facebook because there's a right. large community of us in the opera world that are connected via Facebook. And there's this sort of shared pain thing. We always pass yeah. this stuff around to each other. Ooh. Like, Oh, this hurt. This tastes oh. terrible. Try it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, the milk smells spoiled. Yeah. Can you smell it and Can tell me? Can you please tell me if I'm right about <laughs> that? <laughs> So true. And then, of yeah. course, everyone gets incensed and, right. you know, starts waving the opera flag. But I just right. think we can't keep doing it the exact same way we've been doing it for however long. You know, the Utah Opera has been doing it 40 years. But I think that what we're doing now is far different from what mm-hmm. they were doing in 1978. And that's, sure. you know, just the growth of the form. Sure. But one of my friends who is always carries the flag on these subjects, he talks about how it's easier to turn a smaller ship. And I feel like a lot of the really exciting experimental stuff is happening at a regional level yeah. or in, in even in smaller companies sure. than the Utah opera, the regional level is the companies like Utah and yeah. Arizona opera and such, sure. but it's infecting now, you know, you can see even the Met is presenting Marnie. It's presenting, it's got a new music director in Yannick Nézé-Séguin mm. and yeah. there's going to be so much more stuff happening there that in, in different directions. So I just think we're at a real, Crossroads in a way. I think you're right. Nimbleness does seem to decrease when budget size grows. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think what I'm hearing from you is changing, yes, doomed, no. No, no, I think it's actually exciting. I like that. Change is exciting. I think so too. Um, You mentioned subject matter a second ago, and it leads me to another question that I try to always ask opera people when I get them on the microphone. I mean, is there an untapped subject, real or imagined, historical, contemporary, that you think really needs to be made into an opera? What would you do if you had that I have ability? the best idea, and I'm afraid it's going to get done, and I won't get any credit for it. I really <laughs> It's time-stamped here, <laughs> I really think we need an operatic version of Steel Magnolias. <laughs> I feel this strongly, and I've gone through, and I've cast it in my mind. Okay. We have conversations. I have a couple of friends that I have yeah, this conversation yeah. with, and we try to decide what the different um, voice types are going to be. You know? I honestly can't believe it hasn't been done now that I, I think about it. I can't it. either. Yeah. And the thing is, opera historically has so many male roles. Yeah. And I just think it's something like Steel Magnolias 
is tailor made for what we need it because sure. it, there's so much more attention now on women representation and Absolutely. the you know we're so lucky that we have so many female directors that come in and work at Utah Opera yeah. that's we were not having to catch up in that respect because no, we're, we were ahead of the curve we've been pretty good about that yeah yeah and i'm so proud of that yeah, and me we're too. finally representing a female composer mm -hmm. in the Utah Opera stage. In with, January, right? In January. Yeah. But we need one of those female-driven yeah. characterizations. Where you, and, and not, you know, some operas have like one main female character, but right. still so many roles for men. And I love the fact that there's like, if you cast Steel Magnolias, you only have two or three male characters. And then you have just this beautiful, these beautiful, this, this female world that's created. And I would love to see that. cast of women. That sounds great. Well, Jake and Jean, if you're listening, um, yes. Steel Magnolias, and make sure you give Carol all the credit she deserves. One more question, Carol. And you knew this was coming because you know the show. We always ask this of people because of our name. And I'm curious, all the theaters you've been in, all the crazy places you've been, have you ever seen a ghost, Carol Anderson? Tell us, please. I have not seen a ghost. And I remember the embarrassment I felt. I was in Santa Fe in the plaza one day, and it turns out they were, for one of the cable networks, they were doing a recording they were asking people about haunted hotels, and, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and they never wrote me to tell me any of my footage got on the show. So that's because I was just like, well, I've never seen a ghost. And I was not the, I was the skeptic. <laughs> but I will say. Are you still is, a skeptic? Well, I hear so many stories about our friend George. Your and friend everyone, George in the Capitol Theater. Everyone's heard about yep. George. Yep. And so, you know, I can't be, I'm not original in, if I bring him up. Yeah. But I will say that as a child with a very vivid imagination mm -hmm. and a certain fear of the night. I used to see a creature outside of my bedroom door. A creature? A, just a large, tall, dark shape. Slenderman? Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I see. I think I don't see enough horror films, yeah. so I don't really. I know there's a reference in there. Yeah, if you look that up later, you'll see what I mean. Yeah, but please no. continue. <laughs> and so I would go running into my parents' room, and I would say, "There's this creature outside." It was tall. It was six, yeah. seven feet tall, and yeah. so we just decided. My parents were so good in the way they handled it. Rather than, you know, buy into it, they were like, that's your friend Eugene, the gorilla that is your friend. And that's how he became my friend. Wow. So that's how I, you know, when you're a little kid and you see monsters everywhere, some, you know, like under the bed and such. What a thoughtful way to handle it from your parents. Yeah. I mean, that's really great. He became my friend. And so that's how, I, when I would see him, then I wasn't afraid because so, it was Eugene, the gorilla. Well, <laughs> I, I think what you're telling people is that any ghost can be made into a friend, exactly. which is really a great way to end. So, Carol, we've needed to do this for a long time. It's been was, a blast. It was. Thank it was. you so much for being a guest on the Ghost Light Thanks. Podcast. My pleasure. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.